I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. So coming at you from noisy Barcelona today and speaking to a guest in slightly noisy Los Angeles, California, you're probably going to hear some street noise. You might hear a lawnmower from the other end. You might hear a street sweeper from my end, but that's just the beauty and the flavor of podcasts these days. So as always, I am delighted to welcome my next guest because I only talk to people I am in awe of and enjoy speaking to. So welcome to Judith Favor. She is someone who loves conversing with people who are interested in finding sacred possibilities in the very human tangle of being human, of personal finances, of relational challenges, of trying to find and discover their inner wisdom. She was born in Portland, Oregon, and raised in the rain. She's an author of six books, a retired lecturer in theology, and a retired minister who is grounded in Quaker tradition and contemplative practice. And I want to talk a lot more about the Quaker tradition because before we pressed record, I was talking about how much I admire actually the Quaker tradition and so many of the beautiful things about it. So Judith has a background that is fascinating. She was married at 19 and love took her to California to raise two sons and a daughter before eventually getting divorced. As she worked in adoptions, flew airplanes, piloted hot air balloons, and taught psychology and human sexuality courses. She then enrolled at Pacific School of Religion in 1981 and went on to pastor United Church of Christ congregations in San Francisco until the ministries of spiritual formation and writing laid claim to her soul, as she puts it. I love that way of putting it. She happily remarried and lived with her beloved husband, Pete, at Pilgrim Place in Claremont, California, until he passed on January 1st, 2020. A year later to the day, Judith began guiding contemplative writing and listening online, offering weekly writing prompts and monthly retreat sessions to a global group gathered by spirituality and practice. I can't imagine anything better to have launched in 2020, not even knowing what was coming. Judith now works in spiritual accompaniment, teaching, and contemplative writing. She's just revamped her website, and I was just visiting it, and she talks about holy listening which describes a covenant in which two people pledge to listen together for God's voice in one of their lives. I love that. Judith nurtures souls and spiritual guidance at Pilgrim Place in Claremont, California. She teaches with Still Point at Ghost Ranch, New Mexico, and conducts contemplative events with Still Point in California, the Center for Christian Spirituality. She's been a member of Spiritual Directors International, which I didn't even know existed, but now I want to know all about it, since 1994 and adheres to their ethical principles and guidelines. And as I'm more or less saying, due to the start of every episode in this season of The Discomfort Practice, we're having this conversation today because we're both engaged in creating discomfort, in guiding people through discomfort, and seeking to change ourselves in the world because we know that with change comes discomfort and it's not something to avoid. Often it's where the juice lies. It's where you need to embrace because it's where the good stuff is. So. It's time for some big, uncomfortable change. It's time for some beautiful conversations in the meantime as we 
establish new ways of thinking and being and rediscover old ways of being and thinking and listen to ourselves. I'm really looking forward to this chat about spiritual contemplation and what the world needs. So welcome, Judith. Thank you. Delighted to be with you. So I know you, you've been warned. <laughs> First question is always, what's an uncomfortable moment that shaped who you are and what you do in the world? Well, probably the most terrifying moment was when I was flying solo in a hot air balloon in the Sierra Nevadas and got caught in crosswinds that blew out the pilot light and I was over forested terrain, mountainous terrain, and out of control. And I could see my certain death ahead. And at that time, I was a Unitarian. I didn't think I had a faith in God, but prayed out loud anyway. God, if you get me out of this mess, I will give my life to you. So before long, a clearing appeared in the forest. The wind, the Holy Spirit, which was... Mm my balloon, I couldn't, you can't steer a balloon, guided me. I landed in this rocky mess and in one piece and uh, was rescued by a little old lady driving the Jeep. She had a CB radio. She called the sheriff. She reported me alive and well, they had already started the search. (laughs) Wow. All that to say, my commitment to God was rooted in intense discomfort. Huh. And here you are doing what you do now. Over the years, yes, indeed, I did. Uh, I, I stayed true to that pledge, and it made all the difference. Wow, that's a really classic road to Damascus moment, isn't it? Where you see this light and think, I'm going to die. I will give you my life if you save me from the situation. Wow, that is a dramatic and deeply uncomfortable experience. But I also love the fact that you're the kind of woman who will go up in a hot air balloon by yourself in the Sierra Nevadas. Props to you for that. So I want to talk about sacred presence because this is what fascinates me most about your biography. There are a lot of fascinating things about your biography, Judith. But what does resting in sacred presence mean? And why do we need that? Well, I, I learned it the hard way at another balloon event. I was burned in flight. That is a passenger opened a fuel valve and started an in-flight fire. And uh, I was I was burned all over my face and hands. And uh, in recovery, after I got out of the hospital, I basically took to my bed and asked friends to keep my children and cook for my family. And I just entered into, I didn't call it sacred presence at the time because I didn't have that language, but I entered into the pain. When you're burned, it hurts a lot, but it doesn't hurt constantly. And so what I learned by becoming one with the sacred and one with the pain was that there's a pain cycle. I thought of it as waves, you know, and troughs. And in the waves, when the pain was very intense, I would wail or moan or pray out loud. When in the troughs, I could rest in sacred presence and just restore. So this tidal rhythm, pain rose, pain receded, breath peaked, you know, and then quieted. So the language of lament, I guess, came at the top of the pain cycle. 
and the contemplative rest came at the bottom of the beat cycle. Mm. Wow, you've had a lot of discomfort. <laughs> Most people haven't experienced burns on their face and hands, but wow, so it is, I mean, the clues in the name, resting in sacred presence. What makes it sacred then? Something bigger than personal. It's a mystery. Um, I've had different names for the sacred. Sometimes it's simply love. Sometimes it's light. Sometimes it's uh, simply presence. So what brought you into your work in spiritual guidance then? Was it a direct path or was it one that surprised you? Big surprise. I, I thought I was going to be in aeronautics. I thought that was my, my life path. Hmm. Um, and <laughs> surprise. <laughs> but, but I had a yearning for something that I couldn't name. And a friend said, well, why don't you go to this Buddhist monastery up on Mount Shasta? There's a woman, Roshi, there. And she'll teach you about meditation. You, okay. So the big surprise was that I'm sitting in the Zendo on my little Zafu pillow, and we've just finished chanting the names of all the bodhisattvas and have entered into stillness. And I feel a presence, warm, loving, embracing, enfolding, wondrous presence. And I hear these words, these bodhisattvas are not your saints, come unto me. And I went, whoa, what just happened here? And I now know that's called a unitive experience. But again, I didn't have that language at the time. It led me, because I didn't have a pastor or spiritual guide or even a counselor, I went to the library <laughs> and started looking at this 200, the shelves, you know, that are all labeled 200, all these uh, spiritual classics. And the one that was, came to my assistance was Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. Mm. And there I found that I wasn't crazy, that I was actually part of something bigger and deeper and older than personal. Wow. Thinking, what the heck just happened to me? I don't know what else to do, so I'll go to the library and <laughs> go to the section that might help. So then it led you toward a tradition. It led you toward something that you weren't even really looking for or didn't know you were looking for. It led me to a church that was pastored by a woman named Judith, actually, who had just graduated from seminary, her first church. And when I sat there in worship with her, every time she said a prayer or blessed the bread or baptized the baby or said the benediction, I cried. I just cried. Mm. And she noticed that. She said, let's talk. So she um, actually identified, she said, will you be my spiritual director? And I had never heard that term, but I got that shiver, that kind of tremendous mysterious. She gave me a book about spiritual direction and asked me to meet with her every week and to pray for her and to pray with her. That's incredible. She didn't offer to be your spiritual director. She asked you to be hers. Yeah, Totally. Amazing. Well, you're about to get my bell, so it's half past. But it's beautiful when you find your path because it grabs you, doesn't it? Like you were seeking, you were open, you were going through all this discomfort. You thought you were in a certain path and then the one for you just kind of grabbed you. That's quite a story about 
the revelation that these are not your saints. Probably a lot of people can recognize that. And that's a hard one to recognize when you're sitting in the midst of a Buddhist monastery. You know, everybody likes Buddhists. Buddhists don't want to hurt anybody. So to have that revelation be like, whoa, <laughs> what just happened here? That must have been quite uncomfortable. Yes. And I think I come to discomfort, honestly. I mean, all my ancestors were Oregon pioneers, loggers, farmers, working class dudes and women. And uh, they never had what I would call a comfortable path through life. There were moments of ease, but in general, you know, the working class neighborhood that I grew up in, there was more discomfort than comfort all the way along. Yeah, I can relate to that a bit. Coming from a very working class pioneer family in Wyoming. Yeah, we're good at struggle. Comfort and resting in presence does not come naturally, I can imagine. <laughs> so what is spiritual guidance? Because, I mean, it's, again, one of those things that sounds pretty obvious, spiritual guidance. But the way that you practice it, offer it, what is it? And what's the benefit of it to others? Hmm. Well, it's a listening ministry primarily. So I listen with, if you and I were in my my little space, but we would listen together for how God was guiding you, what things, what you were noticing, how you were navigating challenges and discomforts, and where you were finding guidance, serenity, heat, meaning, hope. So it's primarily companioning, and that's the when you told me you're working with leadership development, I thought, well, what kind of leadership is floating? I'm not even sure. And realized that it's leading, it's a kind of being with leadership. It's, mm. it's empathic. Yeah. yeah, and I like that companionship. Says it all. You're alongside. You're not ahead of or behind. You're alongside, just walking the path with them and helping them to find their own inner wisdom or divine wisdom. Whoever listening, you know, whatever words you need to hear to understand that, that's it, right? So then I know that you follow the ethical guidelines of Spiritual Directors International. And this is really interesting to me because obviously ethical guidelines are important, but I can't begin to imagine what some of these are. You know, sort of what are they? I think this will give us a little peek into what spiritual companionship and spiritual guidance actually is, because maybe what it isn't is quite enlightening. Read a little bit from the Guidelines for Ethical Conduct. It flows from lived reverence for God, self, and others, but it's not inevitably the reality of every spiritual direction relationship. Therefore, these guidelines are meant to inspire and support members toward integrity, responsibility, faithfulness in the practice. So the different elements have to do with being personally responsible for your own spiritual development support and growth and following communal in my case the community is quakers but there are people in all traditions started this ministry actually started in roman catholic tradition mm-hmm. and was required nuns and monks quote in formation it didn't come into the protestant world until mm-hmm. say the 70s maybe or 1980s mm-hmm. and now i'm presuming it's interfaith it's not just Christian, Protestant, Catholic, it's all faiths. Yeah. Which is beautiful because, I mean, to anyone listening, we'll check out Spiritual Directors International because no matter what faith tradition you come from or are part of or no religious or spiritual tradition, 
this is the kind of thing that is open to all. So I would also just suggest if don't get hung up on the language, anybody, if you don't like the term God or it doesn't feel comfortable to you, replace it with whatever word does work for you, because it's all about we're talking about, you know, being with divine presence or universal presence or whatever and finding your inner wisdom or finding divine wisdoms. Just insert the language that you need. I don't think either of us objects to that, do we? So I'm interested in about the contemplation silence, because that's such a a defining feature of how you talk about your work, what you write about, how you write even, and also what you've already talked about a bit here tonight. So what are some of the beautiful possibilities hidden in contemplation and silence? Well, letting go of what I think I know in order to be available to what's greater, deeper, more meaningful than my personal limits. It holding, I'm going to call it expectant silence, uh, kind of an expectant waiting without filling my inner space, head space, heart space with busy thoughts or busy feelings. It's a quieting practice. And I learned it from people who were able to hold what I call cared for silence. So it's not the kind of silence where you space out or go daydreaming. It's conscious labor. Mm. Being very present. Fun. It's about being very present in the silence, very, isn't it? Very, yeah. And I like the term presencing. I like to think of presencing as a verb, an active way of holding attention. And talk more about that. I think there's a lot more to be explored there. And I get the feeling you have more thoughts on this. So. What is presencing to those who might have zero idea what you're talking about? It's body-based. It involves actually being very aware of, I'm aware, for instance, right now that my cheeks are pink because when I'm channeling the Holy Spirit, I heat up. Mm-hmm. I just have a sweater up, you know? So there's a, a source, a force of energy that comes through the body and Quakers are called Quakers because in the early days when they spoke, from the spirit, their voices shook and their bodies quaked. And actually quaking was kind of a uh, insult. <laughs> Quakers. But it's a, presencing is a very embodied form of awareness. And later we'll do a little breath practice uh, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean. It's easier to do it than to talk about. It. Yeah. So if you're still wondering out there what we're talking about, we will be doing a little guided practice later on. Judith is going to take us through a brief breath practice, which is about presencing and embodiment. And I am really looking forward to being her test subject on this. So you can follow along. So obviously this whole podcast is about discomfort and practicing it very consciously to actually bring about change that's needed, consciousness that's needed. So what is the role of discomfort in contemplation and silence or what's the presence of discomfort? I'm not even sure what I'm asking here, but I'm pretty sure you can roll with this in a very articulate way. Well, discomfort is just a very human reality. I mean, um, (laughs) nobody can avoid it. I mean, we all have doubts. We all have disappointments. We all have failures. We all have humiliations. We all lose loved ones. We all dump or 
get dumped, you know, in relationships. So there's just being able to lean into it rather than deny it. I guess that's the word that I'm looking for. And it helps to have support for that and helps to have models for that. I was preparing for you today and I realized one of my models was Winnie the Pooh. You know, (laughs) I was read to as a child, Bible stories sometimes, but most of the poetry of A.A. Milne and the prose of A.A. Milne. And so Tigger and Rabbit and E.R. and Winnie, you know, they all got into all kinds of uncomfortable situations and (laughs) helped each other figure it out. I love that because it's taking me back to my childhood and those beautiful illustrations in the Winnie the Pooh books. But that's a great one. If you sort of don't have any models of discomfort, because I hadn't thought about that. I have some beautiful models of people who are able to sit in discomfort, who understand the beauty and the value of discomfort, but some people might not. Just go read a Winnie the Pooh book and you'll see it right there. Yeah, they're beautiful and they tap you right back into your childhood. So you've talked a lot already about how discomfort has really laid out your path in a lot of ways or nudged you along and revealed things to you, made you deeply uncomfortable, given you really, really painful space and time to rest in sacred presence, which is not really the story that you expect to hear about somebody who's covered in burns. So what are the gems that lie in discomfort? What are some of the gems that you've seen maybe from those who you guide? I, again, because I'm empathic and I think a lot of your listeners are what we would call highly sensitive persons. That sensitivity can either take us down you know, or show us the way through. And I'm thinking of an example here about writing my way through discomfort. I I used to babysit. I lived in a working class neighborhood and a lot of working parents. And so every day after school and many weekends, I would be babysitting for the neighbor. And when you're in the home's dysfunctional family, homes, there's all kinds of signs of discomfort in the children and in the environment. And I remember taking my little diary with me when I babysat at night and writing my way through my puzzlement and confusion about what goes on in this house. I see evidence of abuse. I see evidence of alcoholism. How do I navigate this? So even as a little kid, I wrote my way through the discomfort. And then my writing life actually got started as a published writer, got started in fury. My aunt showed me some family documents she'd found at the courthouse, including a death certificate for her grandmother, my, my great-grandma, that she died at the Multnomah County Porfer in the Depression. And I went, what? You know, this was horrifying news to me. Scared my poor aunt. She said, it's not my fault. I <laughs> know, it's not your fault. You didn't commit her to the poor fire, but somebody did. And how did that happen? And why is that a secret? And how come my family has kept that shameful secret from me until I was in my 50s? So this intense discomfort of, in that case, turned into righteous anger. <laughs> I want to right this wrong. You know, I want to unpack this. And uh, so I I wrote a book about it. I actually called it The Edge Fielders. The the poor farm was called Edge Field. It's on the edge of Portland, Oregon. And uh, 
in that process, the comfort came from the ancestors themselves. They, I'm not sure I like the word channeling. It sounds a little new agey, but they came to me. I waited in silence. I asked for their help, asked for their presence and their guidance. What's your story and how can I tell it? You're long gone, but your story needs to be redeemed here. So, ah, What a beautiful example of writing a past wrong. Because we all have that in our heritage, in our families. There's always, I mean, where there are humans, there are mistakes. There are things to be righted, wrongs to be righted. And what a beautiful way of healing some family history, but also come up, you know, you came at it from a very personal place of being distressed about it, uncomfortable about it. But who knows what happened energetically there that has healed your children's 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 children, you know, being a good ancestor yourself there by healing something in your lineage. Wow, that's a really powerful example, actually. And actually brings us quite nicely into what you do about embodied writing. Talk about embodied writing. And you talk about, you said something on your website, I believe, about beautiful questions point toward new possibilities hidden in the spaces between the words. It sounds like you've been practicing this craft for quite a long time from, like, you know, a very young age when you used to journal about your babysitting experiences and observing the energy and the, the signs and households. So can we talk about some of your points about embodied writing, doing it? helping others to do it. Here we go. You, you keep getting my bells. Time is flying by, Judith. So obviously we're in the midst of a pandemic and a massive collective grief and a shift in how the world works. And we're really struggling, I would say. I'm struggling. Pretty much everybody I know is struggling at some level with this huge loss we've gone through of the life we knew, the systems we thought we could rely on. So how can embodied writing actually help people right now? And what is it? Let's explain what it is and then how can it help people? It is just paying close attention to signals, you know, that come up in the breath, the blood pressure, the temperature, and noting what guidance, what insight, what perspectives are coming through that kind of attentiveness. So I too, you know, was homebound during during the pandemic and it followed for me very closely on the loss of my son who died in 2019 and my husband who died early in 2020. Mm. So there was a kind of double grieving going on. And, you know, the body knows the way through, but the connective tissue, I'm going to call it that, uh, is actually bodily sensations and Mm. tending, honoring, offering dignity, you know, to the tears, offering respect to the times of paralysis. And so I guess the beautiful questions come out of of asking for guidance, at least in my opinion. Sometimes I get beautiful questions from poets. You know, Mary Oliver is the champion. Oh, yes. Well, David White, another champion. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, the connective tissue is this prayerful presence, the practicing the presence of the holy around and beyond me, as well as within me. Quakers understand that we all have the light within and that of God. Quakers always uh, look for that of God in everyone. So it's when we do that in community in particular, yes, we can do 
contemplative writing alone, and many people do. But what came to me during the pandemic was that we need a collective chalice here to do the kind of deep exploratory writing and to have a trained and respectful group of listeners to have you ever heard the term hear us into speech hear each other into speech no i love it please do unpack that to your heart's content well the the, the, nail morton n-e-l-l-e morton was the uh, originator of that term and she came to it in the community where i live which is a community of retired ministers and missionaries and chaplains and teachers Neil Morton was a Baptist Sunday school teacher back in the 30s and 40s. And when she got here to Pilgrim Place, she gathered groups of women to come together to share their spiritual journeys. And she said, when we listen, it's not a passive thing. We listen actively. We hear each other into speech. Mm. And it doesn't happen without, I'm going to use the word midwives, you know, spiritual midwives. So the work that I do as a spiritual companion is a midwifing. The work I do as a teacher of contemplative writing, midwives, but that one midwives, to coming into community with our hidden doubts and hopes and hurts. And mm-hmm. I like what you, I love what you said about the need for a collective chalice, a place to come together and rest and be fed and nourished. And we were all so separated and then still are to an extent. And we don't know when things are ever going to be, I don't want to say the word normal. They're never going to be normal again, but when we'll be able to connect again and how we navigate, I've had a lot of conversations with guests on this podcast, how we navigate a more digital world and a more tech-based society. How do we truly connect as humans? And I think listening is always an answer, isn't it? Because even if you're doing it via Zoom, Listening is powerful and active. You're not just sitting there thinking about what you're going to say next. You're engaging. And there are techniques to it. In fact, I just taught this to my undergrads here in Barcelona. In their leadership course, we talked about active listening as we talk about negotiation, but also leadership traits because it's strong. Active listening is strong. It's very present. I love some of the lines that you have. You're such a poet, Judith. And the way that you put things and the way that you put together words, I just find it really yummy. It's just really beautiful to read and and to think about. So you talk about questions in embodied writing, like who and what helps you identify the question you don't want to answer. What comes up for people (laughs) who you're helping to midwife into what they need to be and what they need to know. What comes up for people when you ask them questions like that? The questions you don't want to answer, what comes up? Usually there are surprises and discoveries and things that people, well, I I recently did a workshop for just an hour with a group of writers, the California Writers Club. And one of the men said, you brought more out of me in one hour than anybody has, you know, in my whole life. So I don't know quite how to describe this, but it's a combination of holding sacred space for and with people. And then when they're stumped, you know, picking that up and offering a question or offering a prompt or a suggestion. 
So here's one example. I'll show you the cover of one of my newest books, Friending Rosie, Respect on Death Row. Rosie is a woman who's been in jail since she was 19, and nobody's ever really taken an interest in her story. She's been talked about, you know, in legal documents. But I started writing to her in 1999 and visiting her in the year 2000. And so over the last two decades, our relationship has become one of midwifing. You know, initially she treated me kind of like a priest. That is, she would she confessed to me, and I kept, you know, confidential. As our relationship went on, she began to minister to me. She's very honest. She's very direct. And uh, she began to ask me beautiful questions. And so <laughs> our correspondence continued. But when I was terribly uncomfortable, I had broken uh, some bones and I was in a rehab hospital. And I saw a, a vision, actually, the words in Cristo on the ceiling embroidered uh, on fabric. And the friend that you met, Philip Clayton, that referred me to you, came to visit me in the hospital that day. And I said, Philip, why would God talk to me in Spanish in Cristo? And he said, Judith, <laughs> don't remember your Greek. <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> That's okay. You're just a theologian. Why would you know such things? I'm kidding. <laughs> Anyway, and Christo, who's the God within, the Christ within, uh, said to me, I, you know, write a book with Rosie. Then I went, oh, come on, you know, ask somebody who's not disabled, who's not in rehab. <laughs> this is not on my agenda. <laughs> Eventually, that calling, that leading was very persistent. And I did bring some Quakers together for a clearness committee. And I said, is this just my ego? What's going on here? He said, no, this is a call. Mm. So all that to say that during the pandemic, Rosie and I together wrote this book about our frustrating, free, unforgettable journey uh, of friendship. And I think the older I get, I'm 81 now, going on 82, it's not so much telling my story anymore, but midwife thing. I'm calling it contemplative memoir, and it's a class that will start in 2022. People who are ready to write, not for fame and fortune or, or social media, kudos, but to write from the gut, write from the heart, write from the, the authentic you know, part of the self. What a beautiful illustration. <laughs> Embodied writing. Wow, I didn't even know what I was asking. That was a really rich answer. But also you mentioned, what was it clearness committee? Yes. That's, I'm going to use quotes here. That's a Quaker technology. From 1795 or whatever. Yeah. Actually, earlier than that, in the 1660s, started Quaker clearance committees because friends didn't have pastors or popes or bishops. So, uh, they met together and asked each other beautiful questions. Hmm. No advice. No, you know, when my aunt had your problem, she did nothing like that. Just open-ended, unloaded questions. Mm, I've experienced that actually when I was quite a young 28-year-old CEO of a, a nonprofit. And I was the youngest one on a leadership course. 
with others. And we had to use that as a technique where someone would bring a question and sit in the middle of the circle and no one was allowed to give advice, just ask questions. And it was one of the most powerful techniques I've ever encountered. But I didn't know it partly comes from Quaker tradition. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's not copyrighted. So run with it. Mm. Well, it is very dependable. It's really difficult for people not to give advice. This is what you very quickly learn about yourself. And I'm not uh, judging anyone because we all have this. We just get in this rhythm, this habit of always listening to offer advice. But when all you do is ask questions to allow the person to find the answer themselves, it's really powerful because they always do. <laughs> That's what blew me away. And the answer that you have inside of yourself you have all of the answers that you need. And that's part of quicker tradition because you do believe that the divine is in all of us. We don't need priests. We don't need hierarchy. We don't need any intermediary of any kind. And that's one of the things I really admire about Quakers. And that makes sense how it then has made its way into the way that you guide people. And that probably lands with people listening who, even if they don't know much about the Quaker tradition, Quaker faith, even if they don't ally themselves with any type of faith, I mean, there's a lot of the stuff that I talk about as a, you know, meditation teacher or somebody who tries to get people to be more present in everything, including discomfort. But yeah, those questions that you don't want to answer. I just want to leave that for people and just chew over that question. If you're listening, what are some of the questions you don't want to answer? And what does that bring up? Because it's not anything to be scared of. It's actually something that can really guide you and nudge you gently even in a a really interesting direction. Like, what are you avoiding? So let me refer you to that. It comes from a David White poem called Start Close In from his book, River Flow. But uh, he poses that in the poem, you know, what start with the place that you don't want to start. Okay, this is going to be my homework because I can't think off the top of my head exactly what that is because it's going to take some quiet and some contemplation. But I think that's probably the question I'll take to my meditation tomorrow morning. So you also ask things like during times of political and economic disruption, what softens you enough to notice delicate new forms of awareness emerging? So I, I love that question because it puts together this really hard political economic disruption which most people now understand far more than they thought they ever would. But then softening and noticing and delicate forms of awareness. And I think there's such value in that. I would love to hear you talk more about that and, and how you've experienced that, how you see others experience that question and the value that it brings. There's a, a newborn qual to it when we're busy reacting to social media or, you know, when our channels are jammed, you know, by all the recycled opinions and reactions to what's going on publicly, then it's harder to find this kind of delicate, this connective tissue of holiness that resides within us. So one of the things, and this maybe is accounted for by my, my age and stage, but I fast from Facebook. I fast from the evening news, have learned that it jams the circus. It makes it harder for me to hear that still small voice that Isaiah or Ezekiel, I think it was Ezekiel, 
heard the still small voice in the cave and I trust that still small voice, but it's too often the world is full of, you know, thunder and lightning and train crashes and uh, political disputes. So I step back from that. You know, there are whole orders of monks and nuns, Buddhists and Christian, you know, who remove themselves from the world in order to be fully present to the holy. For anyone listening who thinks, wow, that's a luxury I don't have, well, that's okay. But I totally agree with you, Judith. Having chosen to stop engaging with the news and to only engage with social media like it's my job, because it is. So I schedule things and I check things like it's my job and then I leave with a sense of relief. Otherwise, it can sweep away the stillness that you need because the still small voice is always there. I believe that's part of your point. It's always there. But you have to hold space to hear it. You have to clear away some of the noise. You tell your listeners what you put on your email when you're not available to answer. I love it. I'd love to hear it out there. Uh, Okay. I'll have to dig it up, actually, because I realized a couple of weeks ago that I was feeling quite overwhelmed, like my life was living me rather than me living my life. And I thought, what the heck is going on here? I've created this life. I have fully participated in its design. You know, by all rights, I should be like the happiest person in the world. I work when I want to work. I only work on projects I love. I'm doing things that I really, truly believe in. So why? Why am I feeling stressed? So I decided to create boundaries um, because email, I I identified two things. It was WhatsApp on my laptop and feeling like I needed to check and then respond to emails. And it, of course, there are loads and loads of studies that talk about how every time you check your email, it takes you a certain amount of minutes, like 15 minutes to get back to the task that you were actually trying to focus on. So it's hugely inefficient. Then it's also really stressful. So I wrote this out of office and it's on permanently on my email. So whenever people email, they get this. And it's partly accountability for me because I've said I'm going to do something. So I have to stick to it. And it says, thanks for being in touch. I'm in the midst of a period of work that requires extra creativity on my part, creating and delivering new workshops on resilience, well-being, sustainable working practice and leadership, creating and teaching a new university course on leadership and upping my game on my weekly podcast. In service to that and to my own well-being, I am only checking and responding to email and work WhatsApps during set hours. If anything is super urgent, WhatsApp me on, and I give my phone number, and I'll know you need a quick response. Otherwise, you can expect a message back from me within one working day. And then I list my email and WhatsApp checking times, which are one hour in the morning and one hour in the evening. And I've said I don't do anything work-related after 7 p.m. And that Fridays are email-free whenever possible. So I keep myself accountable because I actually have people, clients who've been like, that is amazing. I'm inspired. I've had a few people be like, I'm not doing email on Fridays. But then if I email them back during my not email or WhatsApp hours, they kind of go, hey. (laughs) So I've set up this outward accountability for myself and I feel such relief and I've been so much more productive since I put it on. There, I love hearing that. And what what I hear in it is it's takes great self-respect mm-hmm. and humility, really, Betsy, both to set those boundaries to protect your your inner resources, to protect your precious the commodity, if you will, of your attention. Um, 
It's attention is precious, isn't it? And we so rarely treat it like it is. It is. It is. Yeah. And I think you ask once upon a time, what does the world need now? You know, and I think you're just modeling for us what the world needs now is is healthy boundaries that protect time, energy, imagination, creativity for what matters most. Instead of always being in reactive mode, you can come home to yourself, come home to your own center, to the light within. And that's your unique gift to the world. That's the leadership model that I think the world needs. <laughs> Thank you. I'm honored. I'm honored to have you recognize that because it did come from a place of really thinking, what does the world need from me? And if I am living in a reactive state, I'm not able to be creative because that's just basic neuroscience. If your nervous system, if you're stressed, it shuts down certain parts of your brain that you need to be strategic and creative. and then I'm just acting like a piece of a machine rather than a beautifully creative human being who's recognized that my purpose in this world is to guide, to know things, to be able to create whatever people need to hear from me. I don't even know what that is half the time, but you need space to do that. And I I did a solo episode, I think it was the end of season two, about how my superpower is naps. And the more that I've given myself permission to rest, the more people have sought me out and asked me to do things that are really aligned with my personal purpose. So I'm doing less, but I'm doing more. And that's been a beautiful lesson. I really want to get that out to people. Amen, sister. Yeah. High five across the airwaves. But actually, that's probably, I'd like to say that again, people. I'm doing less but I'm doing more. And I had a really, I'm just going to say it. I had a beautiful experience of filing my quarterly tax return with a new accountant here in Spain. And I had to fill out a spreadsheet for him. And I looked at the money that I had made in the past three months, the previous three months and realized I actually have made a really decent amount of money. I'm not exhausted. I don't feel like I've ever worked that hard. I certainly haven't worked five days a week. I have taken a nap every afternoon I needed to in the hot Barcelona summer. I have had time to have great relationships with other people. I have cooked. I'm in good health. I'm not tired. And I was, this is probably the first time in my life I've felt like that because I had always sort of succumbed to my pioneer narrative that everything has to be a struggle or you're not really doing enough. So it's been in giving myself permission to have those boundaries, to listen to myself, and then to give myself what I truly need, which is enough rest, which is luxury time to just do nothing, not even read a book, and cook and listen. Make time for contemplative practice in particular, whether that's going for a walk by myself in nature or sitting and meditating or whatever that is, talking something through with a friend who will just listen to me. I am so much more powerful in the world and I'm so much truer to what I'm meant to be doing and the essence of me as Betsy Reed. And it's just been a beautiful discovery to to realize it can be so light. I'm wearing impact so much more lightly than I used to. I thought I had to grind for it. And it's just coming by just being. So that's my message to people. Experiment with being and listening because it might be a lot more powerful than doing. And you're reminding me of the 
the basis of the work that I did on Sabbath economics, it starts with, with Sabbath exactly, mm-hmm. as you're just my, you know, starting with the interior and the rest. There's a Spanish proverb, actually, that <laughs> Sabbath is about doing nothing and then taking a nap afterwards. <laughs> oh, very Spanish. I love that. <laughs> Let's actually talk about this book and the concept of Sabbath and rest, right? Well, it's a spiritual guide to love and money. So I think there's lots of practices and stories, you know, in the text. But the new one, and this also came out of the pandemic, the new one is the companion journal. So this is really about a lot of blank pages with prompts and beautiful questions for every day of the year to look at the different aspects of your financial life, buying, having, giving, sharing, saving, but all through the lens of a contemplative practice and presence to the holy. So I hope these books find their readers and because when we are able to make money decisions and love decisions from the core of our deep center, the light within, um, changes everything. It is everything. People talk about how money is so important because it's energy. It's tied to our sense of survival, our fight or flight instinct, our very animal instincts, actually. But it can be such a beautiful lightness and flow in the world, too. It's interesting. What drew you to write a book about love and money, then, based on the idea of the Sabbath? This is kind of fascinating to me now. A lot of discomfort in Haiti. I I used to take groups of privileged white Christians to immersion, not to build things in Haiti or fix anything, but to listen and learn. Oh, wow. Peasants, you know, talk with market women, learn how they manage. And my prayer practice wasn't sturdy enough to be immersed in Haitian life. I was overwhelmed by the poverty, the misery, the poor health, the poor vision. And so I just prayed for help. And what came to me was a very intuitive prayer form that's wordless. I didn't have the words. I used to think prayers were about words. But I can still remember being stuck in traffic in Port-au-Prince and there were gunshots and riots and asking for guidance. And what came was an infinity loop of light, very broad band of light, the color of the inside of an abalone shell, you know, that color, Mm -hmm. Uh, encircling me, protecting me basically from being shot at the intersection and enfolding the shooters, enfolding these desperate guys who were running across the road and then enfolding frightened people who were down on the ground, you know, trying to get out of the line of fire. But this very dynamic prayer form now comes to me at moments of distress as well as moments of comfort. And it's just the light of Christ, this broad, broad band of divine love. We're not in the same loop. And if I'm counseling somebody who's going through grief, I'm not in the grief immersed with her, but Mm. we're each in our own loop of light and we're each held and protected. So, and and that's when love and bunny came together for me, the way the Haitians 
manage the kind of resilience they showed me. Well, okay. Because I wondered, having seen that book, I was like, this one seems like a bit of a departure from your other books. So I kind of, I wondered, but that's beautiful. But also let's talk about the concept of Sabbath. I think this is a really useful one to, to put out there toward the end of our chat. Just the concept of Sabbath and rest and taking some time off because obviously people know what Sabbath is, but do you really observe it yourself? And do you realize the value of it yourself? I'm asking listeners. Because, you know, we hear about things like tech Sabbath. I know people who take a day off from anything tech related a day a week, and it's just magical. Or like you've talked about fasting from Facebook or sort of various social media inputs or the news. But that concept of Sabbath, what do you see as the value of, I guess, if you're not religious, finding a way to create some sort of a, a ritual of rest that's like the Sabbath? Would this be a good time for a Sabbath practice? I think it might be. This might be the moment for our contemplative practice. Well, rather than talk about it, how about we practice it? Let's do it. This was completely unscripted, so that came up quite nicely. Let's do it. So I'm going to call it a Sabbath practice in not knowing. Practicing not knowing. So just invite you to be comfortable in a secure place and focus attention on your breath. Breath of life. Let each inhale fill you with nourishment. And let each breath go with gratitude. Breathe in the, on the phrase, here I am. Breathe in, here I am. And breathe out. As it is, as it is. Here I am comes from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, Hebrew scripture. As it is comes from the New Testament, Jesus' prayer, Lord's prayer, he called it. Three little words hidden between on heaven and earth. On heaven as it is in, or on earth as it is in heaven, as it is. So just breathing in, inhaling, here I am. Exhaling as it is. And as you breathe and follow the Sabbath breath, notice a light, a light. A mysterious light. And notice the color of it, the tone and texture of it. For me, the quality of light that's coming right now is the pearl, kind of a pearl essence of light. But notice what yours is. And as you inhale, here I am, enfolded in this light. And as you exhale, as it is, 
wrist in the light. Breathing slowly into the realm of not knowing. And if thoughts come to you or memories, breathe them out. As it is, let them go. And breathing back into the light that is you, that is within you, that is around you. Here I am. Just breathing, resting, receiving. Resting in not knowing. And opening yourself the way a flower opens itself to a ray of sun. Opening yourself to being led toward a knowing that's currently out of reach. Breathing in, receiving guidance, receiving insight. Breathing out, letting go of anything that's not of this moment. Staying present in the light. And then let your eyes open and as you prepare to rise, trust that you can call upon, here I am, and as it is, any time in the midst of discomfort. Thank you so much. That was really powerful. And I practice these kinds of things all the time and they always surprise me with just how powerful they are. The simplicity, but the power of just being still, being guided, midwifed into just being so thank you so much, Gia. That was beautiful. I feel like we're coming to a natural conclusion. So if you're listening and you want to rewind and do that practice again, make sure you're not driving a car or watching small children, but give yourself a delicious moment, a pause in your day, anytime you need it. And I just want to ask you if there's any final thought you would like to leave people with. What do you want people to remember or know? Well, I think we're right on the verge of a kind of collective consciousness, a shift in empathy, humility, respect. There's lots of evidence that there's a collective consciousness taking shape, and each of us has a unique part of that. We're, you know, our imagination is as unique as our fingerprint, and when we bring our Unique gifts to the collective. Who knows what's... I just got chills. That is such a beautiful gift to leave people with. Remember that you are as unique as your thumbprint. Your consciousness is as unique as your thumbprint. And it's nice to hear that from you because I wonder sometimes if I'm in a little bubble. I'm knowing that, of seeing that, this collective consciousness emerging. But I have great optimism about what is happening right now in the world in the midst of breakdown and change and grief and discomfort. I truly do agree with you. It's the beginning of something much more beautiful that works better for more people and more beings and our planet. So 
<sighs> I feel relieved to hear you say that. Last word to uh, an evolutionary biologist. Her name is Elizabeth Pantoris. And she discovered imaginal cells in the muck and darkness of the chrysalis when the caterpillar eats itself into a stupor and goes into the chrysalis stage. Its body turns into goo, it dissolves. And what Elizabeth Katoris found was that in that darkness, the imaginal cells that have the structure of the butterfly but couldn't find each other in the mass move about in the dark connect and form the new being. So I think within each of us, there are imaginal cells and maybe we're finding in in our own discomfort, if we can be quiet and present to what we don't know and trust that we'll be guided into what we need to know, we can work out a whole new social structure. Mm. And our imaginal selves magnetizing these imaginal cells of others. I love that. I actually did an episode, I think it was season one, of talking about butterfly soup, about that gross, gooey, in the chrysalis, in the cocoon moment where like you don't really want to think about it. You just want to think about the beautiful butterfly that emerges on the other end of it. But we are definitely in the butterfly soup right now. But the imaginal cell, that's beautiful. Yes, we hadn't talked about that. (laughs) Yeah. But it's gross. It's uncomfortable. You don't want to think about it, but we're in it. But imaginal cells are drawing each other toward this more beautiful moment where we've kind of gotten through the work that needed to be done to break down so that we can then build beautifully. Judah, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for sticking with me through some tech issues that we will not talk about. (laughs) But I just, I am so blessed by your presence and I feel so relaxed and in touch with my inner knowing and inner softness. So I just want to thank you. And I really would love to hear from listeners what they think of this episode. So we will leave in the show notes uh, to these books, where you can find them, what they are, how you can find out more about her. Obviously, we'll be sharing this on social media and to make a little link for spirituality and practice, which is a wonderful resource during this time of our, our life. Beautiful. Okay. So extra resource. Yeah. We will post all of those and I would love to know from listeners what they find. So once again, thank you so much for your time and your presence and your you-ness, Judith. And your ministry, Betsy. It's world. <laughs> all right. Blessings to all. Thank you very much. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like the discomfort practice wherever you listen to podcasts leave me a five-star and written review, and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast. And for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at TheBetsyReed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay uncomfortable.